Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 39. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse, excuse me, 35. If you've got a 39, you'd need to get a different Bible. This is what God's word says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. $7,200 a week. That's not my salary, by the way. $7,200 a week. That is the minimum salary in 2017 for a practice player in the National Football League. Now, they they don't make that every week, so feel a little bad for them. They only get that for 17 weeks, unless, of course, their team makes it into the playoffs. But for 17 weeks, the minimum salary they can be paid per week is $7,200. So if you're amazing at math and you've already figured it out, I'm not, so I wrote it down. That's $122,400. That's not bad for 17 weeks. It's certainly not bad for being on a practice squad where you will practice and most of them will never make it into the game. They'll never play on Sunday or Monday night or Thursday night. They will be permanent practice members. This morning, as we look at our text, there's something that's very clear and it's this. Jesus Christ does not have a practice squad. Jesus Christ has no disciples that are relegated to practice only, but that he never intends to get into the game. In fact, as we come to this text, we're at kind of a a turning point, or should we say a launching pad in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew focuses in on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecy concerning the one who was to come, the king that was promised. And so Matthew starts out genealogy in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and then from there talks a little bit about Jesus' birth and specifically focuses in on how it fulfills all of these prophecies. He tells us a bit of the ministry of John the Baptist, and then In chapter 4, Jesus' ministry really begins. He calls some of his disciples and then his ministry starts. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we have a verse that's almost identical to our first verse in 9.35. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 says, And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It's almost word for word what we find in Matthew 9, 35. What's going to happen after that is, is Jesus is going to, in chapter 5, He's going to begin the Sermon on the Mount. At least that's what we call it. I don't think He had like a bulletin that said Sermon on the Mount and told people what songs they would sing and all that. But nonetheless, that's what we call it, Sermon on the Mount. And so He begins that, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, And it gives us an example of what Jesus taught, the way Jesus taught when he would enter into those synagogues. Now, the setting of the Sermon on the Mount isn't a synagogue. But as Jesus traveled around, this is the type of thing that he taught. This is the way that he taught. And at the end of Matthew chapter 7, there was something that stood out to the people. And it was that Jesus taught with authority. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus taught with authority. And as you come right out of Matthew chapter 7, you come into Matthew chapter 8, and the authority that Jesus demonstrates in His teaching is backed up by miraculous acts of mercy. Jesus begins doing miracles and shows that He is more powerful than leprosy, so that when Jesus touches a leper, he doesn't become unclean, the leper becomes clean. He touches blind men and they receive sight, he calms a storm, he casts out demons, and he reverses death. Now the power of Jesus' teaching and of his miracles of mercy, because most of them were not miracles like the calming of the storm. Most of them were healings. Most of them were reaching down and touching people who were either demon-possessed or were uh, paralyzed or had some type of other disease. Because of this display of authority in teaching and in miracles, the religious leaders were kind of painted into a corner. Either you accept that Jesus is the King prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. They couldn't refute His authority in His teaching or in His miracles. The only other option they had was to say He got authority from somewhere else. And that's exactly what they chose to do in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34. They said, says, but the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now, in our section here, verse 35 of Matthew 9, again, we have almost the exact same thing. Matthew repeats this same summary of Jesus' ministry, and he gives us a little synopsis here, and something's going to happen. You see, Jesus has been demonstrating all of this authority and power, but he's been the one up front. He's called the disciples, and when he called them, he said, Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Well, thus far, they haven't done much fishing. They've watched Jesus teach. They've watched Jesus do miracles. But they've just sat in the background. And perhaps one would think, the king has come, and now the the citizens are just going to sit back, and the king will do his thing, and we'll just lounge over here, and go king, go, and we'll just be the cheering section. No. That was not Jesus' plan for his disciples. For his twelve, and as we know, it was not his plan in the future for the church either. So as we look at our text this morning, ultimately I want want us to, 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 to come down to three questions for us. 
But here's the three things that I, I want us to see. I want us to see the exclusive ministry, the inclusive, excuse me, ministry of Christ, the compassion of Christ, and the unfinished task. The inclusive ministry of Christ, the compassion of Christ, and the unfinished task. In verse 35, we see this inclusive ministry of Christ. It says this, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. What we see here, again, is what we saw in chapter 4, verse 23. We see a threefold ministry of Christ. He taught in their synagogues. The synagogue would have been a natural place for him to go. It was a place of learning and teaching, so that's where he would show up. He didn't teach exclusively in the synagogues, but it was the main place that he taught. He would go and he would teach, and as we mentioned earlier, the Sermon on the Mount gives us a great example of the way that Jesus taught and the things that he taught. He also proclaimed. It says in our verse that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaim means to herald. He announced good news about the kingdom. Well, what was the good news? Well, the the goodest of good news, excuse my grammar, is that the king is here. The king is present. But part of what that meant as well was that the covenant promises had not failed. They weren't dried up. That God had not forgotten the covenant that he had made, but that he was going to be faithful. He was keeping those promises. The other part of the good news of the kingdom was that entrance into this kingdom was not through rigorous law keeping. And when I say law keeping, I'm not just talking about the law of Moses. I'm also talking about all the extra laws that the religious leaders like to add on. That's the way they wanted to say you showed that you were really righteous. And Jesus comes along and says, oh no. In fact, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect, Jesus said, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, if you can reach to that, then you can go ahead and leave. I got nothing for you. Entrance into the kingdom would come by faith. Entrance into the kingdom now that the king had arrived would come through the king only because he was the way, the truth, and the life. Entrance into the kingdom would come by faith, meaning it wasn't exclusively for Jews, but there would also be Gentiles. Now that that wasn't a change in things. That's the way it had always been back when when God entered into covenant with Abraham. He said he wanted through him to bless all. All of the nations. But when a Gentile soldier recognizes the authority of Jesus far better than most Jews, Jesus marvels and in Matthew chapter 8 verse 11, He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? The third aspect of Jesus' ministry were these miracles, these miraculous acts of mercy. They were to authenticate His message. But I think it's important that we don't forget that they were, most of them were very particular. There were moments He calmed storms. There were moments He divided loaves and fish and that kind of thing. But most of Jesus' miracles were right down in the dirt. They were personal. 
It was touching someone. It was seeing someone. It was, it was listening to someone. It was visiting someone's house. As you have probably heard before, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Jesus was intent on displaying his heart for these people. And so he did these miraculous acts of mercy. He cared for them. He went to them. But what I want us to focus in on in this verse is a little word that's easy to pass over. It's right there near the beginning. A-L-L. It says, Jesus went through all the cities and villages. And then when it talks about his healing, it says he healed every disease and every affliction. Now, Jesus' ministry was primarily to the house of Israel. There's no question about that. But what we can tend to forget is that within the house of Israel, Jesus did not have an exclusive ministry, but a very inclusive ministry. When you read through the Gospels, you cannot say, well, Jesus primarily went to grown men. No, Jesus primarily went to women. No, no, Jesus primarily went to poor people and he neglected all the rich people. He went to the unrighteous. No, he went to the righteous. He went to the religious, the un... No. Jesus went, which by the way in this verse is the key verb, he went. And as he went, he did all of these things. But he went and he went indiscriminately, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing those who were brought into his path. So in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, a verse that we know well, Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As Jesus, the outflow of this text is going to be that Jesus is going to send his 12. He's going to send them as well to the lost sheep of Israel. And when he sends them out, he doesn't say to them, now guys, listen to me, I just want you to go to other guys that are like you. So Peter, you go to the fishermen, Matthew, you go to the tax collectors, and uh, no. He tells them to go and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And the only limitation he puts on it is this. If they reject the message, if they reject you, then you knock the dust off of your sandals and you move on. But don't you look at any person and decide for yourself that you want to pass them by. It's interesting when we look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which we heard this morning in verse 19, it says, go and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, not an exclusive ministry, but an inclusive ministry. The task that Christ gave to his disciples, the 12 here, was to go out and proclaim the gospel. And if people wanted to reject the gospel, that was fine, but you don't reject them. And the call he's made to his church is the same. Here's the problem though. My heart leans towards an exclusive way of thinking. 
I lean towards an exclusive ministry. I, I tend to look at people and size them up before I've ever extended mercy to them or proclaimed the gospel to them. And I say, wait a second, you don't look like me. You aren't in the same economic group as me. You, you, you look like you wouldn't hear, and so I'm not going to share. I'm not going to even try. I find another white, middle-class, morally upstanding, occasional church-attending, middle-aged southern gentleman, and I think, oh, here, we, 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 can, we can talk now. We're on the same ground. And what I may find is that his heart is as hard as titanium towards the gospel. But it may be that there's some teenage girl who is on the verge of getting an abortion whose heart is so broken that she is ready and prepared to hear of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. That there is a Savior who loves her and if someone would but extend mercy towards her, she would crumble at the feet of Jesus. Tears pouring over His feet, wiping His feet with her hair. Our ministry ought to be that of a soup kitchen, not a country club. That's my first question for us. Is our ministry a country club or a soup kitchen? I don't know if you've been to a country club before. I have been there to play golf. And if you've seen my golf game, you know why I feel uncomfortable at a country club. When you walk into a country club, especially the fancier it is, the less they want you there, unless you're a member. They tend to not put signs up just so you can be the moron wandering around. Where's the bathroom in this place? You walk into a country club and you get this impression that you are not good enough and you are not wanted. In a soup kitchen, the only people that don't want to be there are people who think they're too good to be there. That ought to be us. That was the ministry of Christ. He went so He could engage as many as possible. Those who rejected Him, He moved on from. And He gave the same instructions to His disciples. And He gives the same instruction to us. He says, go to all. So how is your ministry? What would reflect your ministry as you move out? Does it look more like a country club or a soup kitchen? The second thing we see is the compassion of Christ in verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. This word compassion is, one commentator put it, it's a visceral emotion. It's sympathetic pity. Compassion isn't something that you do. It's something that you have that affects what you do, how you do it, and why you do it. What's interesting is that compassion in the Gospel of Matthew and in all the other Gospels is distinctly characteristic of Christ. This verb is used only of Christ throughout the Gospels and in His parables. So for instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it says that the Good Samaritan saw this Jew that had been robbed and beaten and left for dead and he had compassion. We also read of the good father in Luke 15 
that had two sons and when his prodigal son who has fled from him and wasted all of his inheritance in loose living has returned to him, it says in Luke 15, 20, when he saw him a long way off, he felt compassion. It tells us of a master who had a servant who had gotten into so much debt, there was no way he would ever be able to pay it all back. And when that servant came and plead for mercy, that master had compassion. I think the image of the good father in Luke 15 is a great example of what compassion is. It helps us to define it. Compassion is not someone who fails to recognize the circumstances, who's just a kind of believing the best about a person. That's not the picture you get in that parable of the good father in Luke 15. As the prodigal son returns, the father is not ignorant of what that son has done. He's not pretending that his son is not responsible and has not made sinful, foolish choices to contribute to his present condition. But he does not allow his son's culpability to block his eyes from seeing his current condition. And so he's moved with compassion towards him. This is what we see in Christ here in this passage he sees the condition of the people of Israel he says it says in our text that they were harassed and helpless it's a good translation that's basically what those words mean they were worn out and they were helpless what image comes to my mind when I when I think of this is our cat that we had in Senegal now I know the moment I said that some of you like I lost some cool points but I've repented of having a cat it will never happen again, so it's okay. You can, you can not detract those cool points from me. We had this cat, and one of the only things that this cat would do that was kind of entertaining was chase geckos in our house. Geckos, little lizards, they got little suction cup feet, and they're all over the walls and whatnot, and things like that. And, and this cat would chase the geckos, and when he would catch the gecko, he didn't kill the gecko. No, that would be pointless. I mean... What he would do is he would get the gecko and he would continue to harass that gecko until long before it was ever dead, it learned, I just need to lay here still because the moment I move, he's going to pounce again. You could come back hours later, there would be a dead gecko on the floor where it had been frozen, harassed and helpless. Because of that dumb cat. That's the state of Israel. Harassed. And helpless. Those aren't things that Jesus saw. They weren't wearing name tags. Hey, my name is Harassed. That's my brother, Helpless. It was something that in compassion he observed about them. They were harassed and helpless. And then it says... That they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now this comes right out of the Old Testament. And there's many places where this imagery is used. Where those who should have shepherded Israel's hearts towards the covenant promises. Pushed them away from the covenant promises. That's what was happening in Jesus' day. You know, we have maybe dogs in our homes. And dogs can be fun things to have around. But a pack of wild dogs on their own, they'll kill somebody. 
They'll attack a grown man. They'll kill a child. I have never in my life heard of a pack of wild sheep attacking someone. I mean, in all the National Geographic shows that I've watched about violent attacks, I have yet to see the show, number one, pack of wild sheep, and it'd probably be Australia because they got weird stuff down there. But pack of wild sheep in Australia, bad man, till he was at least deaf, I don't know, maybe. Doesn't happen because sheep without a shepherd are absolutely helpless, defenseless. That's the way Israel was. Now, here's the thing. Israel as a nation wasn't innocent in this condition. I mean, all you got to do is go back to Exodus and start with Moses and see how they treated the shepherds that God sent their way. Go from Moses to Malachi and just look at the prophets and see what Israel did with the good shepherds, lowercase g, that God sent their way. And if you don't believe me, look at what they would do with the Good Shepherd, capital G, that God had sent their way. They were not innocent, but their lack of innocence did not hinder Christ from having regard for their condition. And so He felt compassion towards them. I think this is what Jesus wanted as He sent out His 12. He wanted them to move out with compassion. He wasn't sending them out as he would do in chapter 11, verse 1. He wasn't sending them out so they could get their I went out on mission disciple badge. The star on their I'm a good person chart. He wanted them to move out, sent out by him with his authority, but with compassion for the people that he was sending them to. He wanted them to gain His heart. We know Jesus came to do the will of the Father. John 6.38 tells us that. But He came also with the heart of the Father. He wanted His disciples to move out and to see people and to love people and to have compassion for people. And I believe that He calls us to the same thing. The Great Commission is not some dry duty that we're obligated to to endure while we're here on this earth. No, we are motivated by the glory of God and moved by the heart of God to the nations. So here's my second question to you. How's the vision of your heart? Now I know in Greek it was really intestines, but that just sounds gross. How are the eyes of your intestines? That doesn't, I don't know. That, anyway, some of you just wrote that down. You're like, skip a heart. Intestine. How are the eyes of your heart? Because here's the thing. Here's this, here's this really simple thing to overlook, but it's, it's really, really quite fascinating that each time you see compassion happening, most times there's another little verb that comes before it that has to come before it. It's this little verb, to see. You can't have compassion for what you do not see. H.B. Charles Jr. said this, You don't see what you see, you see what you're looking for. I'll say that again. You don't see what you see, you see what you're looking for. Jesus saw people and he had compassion. In our verse here, Matthew 9.36, in Matthew 14.14, in Luke 7.13, and in Luke 15.20, Jesus saw crowds, He saw people, and when He saw them, He had compassion on them. 
When the good Samaritan saw the Jewish man there left for dead, he was moved to compassion. When the good father saw his prodigal son coming, he felt compassion. So how are the eyes of our hearts? Our hearts are not often moved to compassion for numbers and statistics. If I can keep people at statistic length, I might be shocked to hear the statistic, but my heart moved to compassion where I'm compelled to do something? Probably not. If I can keep the lost as the proverbial they, it's easy for me to not be stirred and too inconvenienced by their condition. It's when they have a face and a name. It's also extremely easy for me to guard my heart from having compassion when I can't see beyond people's culpability to their condition. And I tell myself that it's their fault they're in that situation. It's their fault that they're there. And if there's any fault to be found in them, my compassion will be reserved for the one who is without fault. Then your compassion and mine are reserved solely for Jesus Christ. Because He's the only one who came and was faultless. And He's not asking for our compassion. In fact, it is He who had compassion for others. The one who was exalted on high sees way down low. Amen? How are the eyes of our heart? How is our heart vision? The last thing that I want us to see is the unfinished task. The unfinished task. Verse 37 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, you've probably heard this if you've spent any time in church before. You've heard this analogy you've heard this image used by christ i've heard it i don't know how many times and not until i began studying it this week did i ever stop and think of that image so i want you to picture it with me picture a harvest field i don't care what kind of harvest peanuts beans strawberries whatever you want it to be but there's a harvest field and it is ripe it is ready And there in the middle of this huge harvest field, ripe and ready, stands three workers. There they are. Rows and rows of strawberries. I mean, they are ripe. They're so ripe, every one you pick, you're tempted to eat instead of putting in the bucket. You know what I'm talking about? There you got huge field of strawberries, ripe as can be, ready to be picked. And you got, what, three workers standing there, buckets in hand that's the image that jesus gives here now in the immediate context jesus is speaking i believe not just of the crowds that are there in front of him but he's speaking specifically of the nation of israel and he's speaking to his disciples and he's saying to them the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few and as a result of this Jesus would send his disciples out into that harvest. Chapter 11, verse 1, he would give them instruction in chapter 10, and then he would send them out. I don't think, though, that that's the completion of the task. If if sending out 12 extra laborers 
into this harvest for a short period of time, completed the task, then Jesus' image to me doesn't quite fit. His image is that there is a large harvest that's plentiful and the laborers are few. In fact, we know that among these disciples, there would be some who would exhaust their lives and die seeking to reap the harvest among the nation of Israel. Now, if this is Jesus' perspective on the nation of Israel, my question this morning is what is God's perspective as He looks out on the 7.5 plus billion people on planet Earth? Statistics tell us that there are 3.15 billion people in the world that are unreached. That is to say that they're, they, they lack enough followers of Jesus Christ so that they don't have the resources and the means to evangelize themselves. That's 42, over 42% of the world's population that remains unreached. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Why is that the case? Why are the laborers few? I think the reason, one of the reasons, is because of what's in the word. Labor. Labor. It's getting out there. It's sacrifice and engagement. Well, when you get this picture, when you think about the lostness of Israel, when Christ draws this image for His 12 disciples, you would think His next word would be, run out there. I mean, just run, just go, just start harvesting stuff. Go! Ah! And you would think when we, when we read this and when we, when we see the statistics, over 3 billion people in the world, folks, that do not know Christ. That panic should ensue in the church of God. That we should run out. That we should all abandon whatever we've got sitting in the crock pot at home and run out to the nations. But that's not what Jesus says. As a direct connection to what He's just said and the picture that He has just painted, He says, therefore, what? Pray earnestly. Beg, plead. Why? Why in the world does prayer fit when a task so huge sits in front of you? Why tell His 12 disciples, there's only 12 of them, and we know they're pretty screwed up as is. I mean, how much harvesting can they do? Get them out there. Why in the world would He turn to that 12 and say, here's what I want you to do, pray. Plead. It is the only command in the entire passage. Plead. Beg. He commands His disciples. Why? Here's the reason. And it's what He says next. It's who they're praying to. There is a Lord of the harvest. Jesus' hope was not that 12 screwed up guys, one he knew was going to betray him and drop off, were the hope of the nation of Israel. No more than Jesus looks at his church and says, that's my hope for the nations. The hope of the nations is the Lord of the harvest. 
It is, as Jesus says, His harvest. It is His task. Israel, at this point in history, when Jesus is saying this, is exactly where the Lord of the harvest intended them to be. As Paul would go on in Galatians to say, at just the right time, God brought forth His Son. It was happening exactly the way the Lord of the harvest intended it to happen. And these 12 men, they didn't wake up one day and go, geez, you know what, I should be a disciple of Jesus. Let me go find that guy. No, it was Jesus that chose them. Jesus that was pursuing them. Jesus who was preparing them. And it would be in God's sovereign plan that they would be sent out. It's the Lord of the harvest who is the hope of the harvest. And He is the one who decides who goes into His harvest field. That's the hope. And so we pray and we plead with Him. Now again, I don't think the task is complete. I think that the example that Jesus has laid here for His disciples is the same thing that He says to you and to me this morning. When we see the need of the nations... Before we ever go or give, we should hit our knees in prayer. So my third question is, how dirty are your knees? How dirty are your knees? In Acts 13, we see this exact same example. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. God pulls aside through the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas, for the work of the ministry as they're fasting and worshiping. And before they ever go out, what does the church do? prays over them and they are sent out who chose paul and barnabas they drew names right and the short guy the guy the short straw he got sent out you know the awkward one nobody wanted to talk to at fellowship time they were like "Eh, get him out of here weirdo no the holy spirit called paul and barnabas and they were sent out and the church prayed over them and the same principle stands for us. Can I ask you this question? How often do you plead with the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest? How often do you beg the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers? Do you want him to do that? I think that should be one of the prayers of this local congregation. It should be one of the, 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 the constant prayer requests among us as a community. God, raise up laborers from among us. I know we've sent some, and I, I know we've got this list of missionaries that, that we talk about, that we support. Praise God for that, but raise up more, please. You ready for that? Parents, you ready for that? You ready when the Holy Spirit works in your child's heart and says, I, I, got, I got to go. I, I know I qualify for the Hope Scholarship, but that, that's, not where, that's not where God's drawing my heart. I want to go to one of those countries where you won't be able to tell our friends the name of it for my security's sake. I want to I go. Are you ready for that, grandparents? You ready to let go of the grandkids? And to send them 
on as a group? Are we ready to say, yes, keep raising them up, Lord, until my checkbook is stretched to its absolute limit? Give us that problem. I want that problem. I want to go, how in the world are we going to support this one? I want the constant problem that when I go to pray, I have to sit there and go, now how in the world do you say the name of this city? I want the problem of having to to learn about new places that I've never known before, never knew they were on the map. I I want to sit with pictures and go, I don't know that person, but I'm praying for that person. Because God raised up laborers from among us and sent them there. And now I have a face and I have a name and I'm pleading for their salvation. I want that problem. Do we want that problem? The task is yet unfinished. In order to get there though, in order to plead in that way, we are going to have to be willing to see. And in order to see, folks, let me tell you something. You're going to have to. We're going to have to. It's going to take effort to look. Now, I understand the immediate context of this passage is to the twelve, and they are in Israel. And as you move from this into the book of Acts, what what Jesus gives is He gives a geography, and He says it's going to start in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. I understand that wasn't figurative. I understand we're already in the uttermost. It sounds kind of gross, but that's where we are. We're there already, but praise God that the Lord of the harvest delights to take from the uttermost and throw them yet further out. In order to get there, though, we're going to have to have eyes to see. We, we live in a country that is so blessed and so individualistic that you can live here, you can watch the news here, you can do life here, and you can be almost completely ignorant to the fact that there is another nation on planet Earth. It's going to take work to move beyond them being a they. You're going to have to take effort to see and to know what's going on in the world. You're going to have to be purposeful and disciplined to find out what's happening and where the needs are and who is there working and engage in prayer for them. The call to these twelve was unique. Jesus, after this, he gives them instruction, then he gives them authority. And their authority was to heal people and cast out demons. And they went out and they did that stuff and they proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. Our calling is different. But our calling is there nonetheless. You see, Jesus didn't have a practice squad He shows us with His twelve that His intention was always to pour into them that He might work through them. And so He sends these twelve out and I would argue that He never pulls them back off the field. Yeah, they come back to Jesus. But He never says, okay, now come sit on the bench. Your your time's done. He just keeps sending them and sending them and sending them until after He is risen and He is ascending to the Father, He says, when the Holy Spirit hits you, you go and don't stop going. 
So the question is not, should we be in the game? The question is, what position has he called you to play? Because our Lord and Savior said to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is that we would have lives that are engaged in ministry. And that our ministries would look more like soup kitchens than they do country clubs. I pray that we would be people who are moved with compassion that we would not allow our hearts to be cold and reserved and pulled away, but that we would see people through your eyes, that as we go, we would be motivated by your glory and moved by your heart. And I pray, Lord, that we would be better at praying, that we would be faithful to plead with you, the Lord of the harvest, to thrust out laborers into the harvest. God, during this missions conference, I pray that the last thing we would do is just have another annual missions conference. That it would not be something that we do because it's on the calendar and we're supposed to do it. What we pray for is that your spirit would work. That you would convict and encourage. That you, even through this missions conference, Lord, might begin the work of stirring in the hearts of some who will attend and calling them to go out. Put a flame in our hearts, God, that burns like yours does. Conform our hearts as we pray for the nations, as we pray for laborers for the nations, that it might be like yours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.